A reading from the second book of Kings. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Holda the prophetess, the son of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe, Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, and all the words of the book that that the king of of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words that you have read, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and have wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the Lord. This morning our gospel passage from Matthew picks up in the middle of a sermon. Specifically, the middle of, in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount appears in Matthew during the early part of Jesus' ministry, after Jesus' baptism, his temptation, and his calling of his first disciples. But also in that early stage, Jesus has been traveling around in the region of Galilee, teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom, and healing diseases. And therefore, As a result of that, he's already gained quite a following at this point. And so this following has gathered around him with his his disciples probably closest to him and, and the rest of the people kind of down the hill a little bit. So with this Sermon on the Mount, which spans three full chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is explaining what this kingdom he's announcing is all about and why it's such good news. A lot of times when people read the Gospel of Matthew and they see kingdom of heaven, they think of heaven in the sense of the afterlife. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is all about at all, right? The kingdom of heaven is life in, is, is living a life in this life under the authority and reign of Jesus and in his power. But today I want to explain this passage. I want to explain what Jesus means by employing these metaphors of salt and light. And how it relates to the, how it relates to the discussion of the law and commandments that, that then follows in the final paragraph. But to be able to do all of this well, I first need to back up to the Old Testament and talk just a minute about the people of Israel. You know, most everyone's aware that the Bible includes a fair share of commands and prohibitions put forth by God. But people often fail to understand that God's law is meant as a gift. God first gave his law to his chosen people, the Israelites, in the Ten Commandments that we read earlier in the service this morning, the Decalogue. He gave that to his people, the Israelites, some maybe 1,500 years or so before Christ. But he gave his law to the Israelites so that it might ultimately be a gift to all people of the world. See, up to that point in history, humankind, including the Israelites, had essentially been left to their own devices about how to live. They they were left just to do what seemed right to them. But by giving Israel the Ten Commandments through Moses, God was revealing how he, our creator, intended for humans to live which is specifically in a manner that reflects his goodness. So he gives these laws, the Ten Commandments to Israel, and the outcome of Israel obeying these laws would be that they would enjoy a life of relationship with God, but also a more peaceful life, more harmonious relationships with one another, because again, they'd be conducting themselves as God had designed them to, instead of on their own sinful understanding. It's like God was providing them with the missing instruction manual for the truly good life. 
But again, this gift was not meant to stop with the Israelites. Rather, the idea was that all the other peoples and nations of the world would see the blessing that Israel experienced of worshiping the the true God and, and living in accordance with his commands so that all the other nations, when they saw that, would then desire to follow their God and and to seek to live their lives according to his law themselves. So you see, this was the special task of the people of Israel, what they were chosen for, a special vocation. God had chosen them as the people he wanted to use to draw, to attract all the people of all the nations of the earth to himself. Well, as great as that plan may sound, as great as it may have sounded at the time. Anyone who's familiar with the Bible knows that unfortunately Israel failed miserably at fulfilling this vocation God had given them. In fact, being rebellious humans like all of us, it was only a matter of days, of mere days after they'd received the Ten Commandments enthusiastically saying, yes, we want to live like that. It was only a few days after that that they broke the first two of them by setting up a golden calf to worship. For the most part, it only got worse after that. Moving forward into the rest of the Old Testament, the Israelites and their rulers seemed much more inclined to break the commandments and to worship the gods of other nations, the false gods, than they were to stay faithful to their God and keep his law. In fact, our first lesson today from 2 King describes an era in the 7th century B.C. when God's people actually managed to lose his law, like literally lost it didn't know where it was, or at least a portion of it. They seemingly just forgot about it for generations, right? Until a scroll of it was found in the temple under the reign of King Josiah. That's what that passage was about. But you know, there's a lot that transpires in the history of God's people between that time of King Josiah in the 7th century B.C. and the time of our gospel passage in the 1st century A.D a lot happens that significantly impacts the place and the role of God's law in Judaism by the time Jesus shows up. See, even though in that first lesson King Josiah is repentant to the Lord about his people losing the law, by that time the Jews' faith had already been sealed. Because of the wickedness of the kings before Josiah, which would only resume after Josiah's reign with the next kings, because of all of that, God would allow his people to be defeated by the Babylonians. In other words, God was saying, look, if you don't care anything about me, I'm not just going to give you my protection. So God allowed the the people of Israel to be defeated by the Babylonians. He allowed Jerusalem to fall and the people to be taken into exile out of their land. Well, even though that period of exile would only last about 70 years, by the next century, the 6th century, God's people would be allowed to return to the land and and rebuild the temple. But from from that time forward, all the way to the days of Jesus, so we're talking 7 centuries, almost that entire period, the Jewish people seemed to be subjected to the occupation of one foreign empire after another. 
from the Persians to the Greeks, and finally the Romans in Jesus' day. They lived almost, almost 700 years under occupation. In other words, even though they were allowed to return from exile, they never really had been able to get back anything like the glory days of the kingdom. So they pinned their hopes on prophecies that God would raise up a Messiah king who they hoped could do that for them, could restore the people of Israel to the glory days. Make Israel great again. That was really the mentality, actually. So scholar N.T. Wright explains how during the centuries of exile and occupation, the Jews found themselves under an almost common pressure, right, because they weren't independent, they were surrounded by peoples more powerful than them, controlling them. They were under an almost constant pressure to assimilate, meaning to conform to the cultures and values and gods of whatever foreign nation was occupying them at any given time. But what they'd also learned from being exiled in the first place was that abandoning God and abandoning His law would would only lead to disastrous consequences. So in those centuries leading up to Jesus' day, the Jews had essentially doubled down on their emphasis on the importance of keeping God's law. Because they believed that, that this would not only keep God on their side, keeping His law, but because the law is what made them unique as a people, made them distinct and different from these other nations around them. So the emphasis on keeping it became a way for the Jews under occupation to maintain their special identity from the pagan Gentile culture around them. So it's in this context of using the law essentially to defend themselves from the world around, to distinguish themselves from the world around, it's under this context that a sect of Jews known as Pharisees came to dominate Judaism. What made the Pharisees' brand of Judaism so attractive is that they not only aimed to keep the Ten Commandments, in addition, they had a particular interpretation of the Scriptures that added laws from the book of books of Numbers and Leviticus that had been prescribed only for priests. They took those laws and applied them essentially to everybody, right? So that they had 613 additional rules in addition to the Ten Commandments that they suggested God's people had to adhere to. Purity laws around what they would eat and Sabbath and things like that. But in that historical context, this was particularly attractive to the Jews. Right? Because under foreign occupation, these Pharisees' extra rules created a second layer of rules that made it less likely they'd violate the Ten Commandments. Right? You're not going to violate the Ten Commandments if you're worried about all 613 of these other ones. Right? More importantly, observing these Pharisees' extra rules would distinguish God's people even more from the Gentile culture that threatened their, the survival of their identity as a people. That's why it was so attractive in the first century. It was a way to mark themselves out and preserve a Jewish identity so they didn't just get absorbed into the Roman society and culture. So this is essentially a defensive use of God's law, you see. 
And by the time that Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, this defensive use of God's law had begun to bear some significantly bad fruit. First of all, by appropriating God's law and these Pharisees' purity codes to to fend off Gentile influence and remain separate from them, by doing that, the Jews were failing to fulfill that original vocation God had given them, weren't they? Again, the reason God had chosen to give his law to Israel in the first place was so that the other peoples of the world, the Gentiles, would see what a blessing it was and then come to learn from Israel about how to follow Israel's God and and the law themselves. But now, rather than being used to attract all these other nations, the Jews were employing this law and even adding to it, these 613 rules, for the purpose of self-preservation, to fend off these other peoples, to keep the Gentiles away and remain separate from them. So that's the first way that this approach to the law was bearing bad fruit. It, It was causing... Uh, Israel, the the Jews, to basically give up the vocation that God had given them to be a light to the nations. But then the second bad fruit that we pick up in, in bits and hints all over the Gospels is the toxic religious culture that this approach to the law was creating within Judaism. The toxic religious Culture. Anybody know anything about toxic religious cultures? See, rather than experiencing the law as a gift, as a roadmap to a life with a life of harmony with God, this the law had become a burden. Right? Because they believed their self-preservation as a people depended on it, right? So you better keep it. Right? Just imagine how much pressure there would have been on individuals to outwardly conform to this law, both the Ten Commandments and the, these extra laws of the Pharisees. Right? And what I mean is how much pressure there would have been to at least appear outwardly to be keeping all of these laws and appear to be righteous. Right? And yet, knowing the human condition, knowing how how hard it would be and possible to do that perfectly. Having such a high bar to live up to undoubtedly would have led many people to to feel like they had to hide their failures. Feel like they had to pretend. To create public masks and personas when they come to church, I mean synagogue. Personas of righteousness. So this is the religious context Jesus enters into and that he's grown up in, right? God's law, which was meant to be a gift, would have been experienced by the average person as like anything but a gift. And the Jews feel so threatened and afraid of the culture around that it's become an us versus them. They've completely lost their sense of vocation to those other peoples. Does any of this sound familiar? We'll get to that in a minute. So where our gospel passage picks up in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is explaining that that as the Messiah, this is part of what he's come to to save people. 
In the first two paragraphs, Jesus is telling the Jewish people how they'd been basically failing to fulfill their God-given vocation. I think he's saying it in, in love, right? Because he's going to help them do something about it. But verse 13, he says, he says, you're salt of the earth. You're supposed to be salt. But, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. In other words, Jesus is saying that God's people have become like salt that isn't salty. What good is salt that isn't salty? Any worth anything. Right? It's utterly useless. And, and, and so he's saying that these, his God's people were being utterly useless for God's purposes for originally choosing them. Then he continues, You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The city set on a hill refers to Jerusalem. If you don't know, Jerusalem was built up on a hill, right? And if the Jews had been fulfilling their purpose, the nations would have been streaming into Jerusalem, right, to learn from them. that wasn't happening. Verse 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Instead, the Jews, again, are seeking to repel those other nations. Essentially hiding the light of God and His law from, as this passage says, from all in the house who it's meant for. From the whole world they were supposed to share it. But having acknowledged the Jews' failure to live up to this vocation, Jesus then announces his plan to do something about it. So there's good news. As the prophets had predicted, Jesus had come to establish a new covenant between God and humankind. In other words, he came to establish new terms of relationship between God and humans where his plan was in that relationship to fashion a people that he could use to draw people from all nations to himself. And Jesus' plan for any of us willing to follow him is to do that, to make over our hearts, to live our lives in love for God and our neighbor such that others will want what we have. This is his plan for any of us willing to embrace Jesus as our king. But how? How does, how does Jesus plan to make his followers into a people who would cause the world to want what they have? To see it and say, I want that. I want to talk to them. Well, that's what Jesus begins to explain in that final paragraph. He says in verse 17, do not think I've come to, a uh, to, excuse me, to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, why would people have thought that? Well, because Jesus didn't abide by all 613 of the Pharisees' purity codes they'd added on, and because he'd been healing people seemingly without regard for how well they kept the law, some people were beginning to suspect Jesus was disregarding the law and the Scripture. But to the contrary, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. And the final three verses of this passage explain, outline, the three ways Jesus will fulfill God's law. First, 
Jesus is going to fulfill, Jesus did fulfill God's law in his own life by living a life in perfect adherence to God's law in a way no one else could or has since. Right, so that's why he says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Right, there wouldn't be a single letter of God's law that Jesus could be accused of, of violating or not keeping. So that's the first way Jesus fulfills God's law. The second was Jesus will fulfill the law and the prophets in what he's about to teach in the rest of this sermon that we're looking at. See, as the Sermon on the Mount moves forward, Jesus is going to reveal a very different understanding of God's commands from what the scribes and Pharisees had been teaching. For example, if we just take the very next section, the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to see next week, Jesus will teach, you've heard it said you shall not murder, right? which we all saw in the Ten Commandments this morning. You've heard it said you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who carries anger in his heart toward his brother will be liable to judgment. He's murdering that person in their heart. And he says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. All right, we read that one too. But I say to you that everyone who looks at someone with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them in their heart. Well, the difference between this and what the scribes and Pharisees have been teaching is stark. As N.T. Wright says, while the scribes and Pharisees were focused on defining and honing people's understanding of these outward behaviors necessary for keeping the law, am I keeping it just right with this action or behavior? While, while they're doing that, with teachings like this, Jesus is revealing that the key actually to obeying God's commands, the key to obeying them outwardly must begin on the inside. With learning how to deal with our sinful desires and impulses in our heart, right? How to surrender those over to Jesus and rely on Him to not succumb to them. That's the key to obeying these, all these commandments outward. But in verse 19, Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, what He's about to teach, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That is, anybody who approaches God's law differently than the interpretation he's about to give, so anybody who, who does it like the Pharisees and scribes have been doing it, anybody who does that will fail to experience the blessings of the kingdom. Right? Religion and God's law will just be, a, frankly, a, a stinking drag. Right? Because it will be all guilt, all rules, but no power to live into it. Right? So all pretending. Pretending is exhausting, particularly religious pretending. I think. I, I should know. I've done a lot of a lot of it. I'm a recovering pretender. So he says, anybody who who doesn't really uh, embrace the way he's explaining the law should be fulfilled is isn't really going to experience the blessings of the kingdom, and, and religion's going to be a drag. But, he says, whoever does them, whoever does seek to fulfill God's law by first looking inside, because that's where all our sin comes from anyway, misdirected desires and instincts gone awry, whoever does that will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So that's the second way Jesus fulfills the laws. He, he explains its true meaning, how to really keep it. <clears throat> this leads to how Jesus intends to fulfill the law in a third way. And that is he intends to fulfill it in our lives. In the lives of those who take up the life of following him in a daily way. Now that may sound impossible. It is without him, right? So the way he intends to do it is through a process, a lifelong journey of transforming our hearts, our desires, our impulses, to be like his, making our hearts like him. So how is he going to do that? How does he do that? Well, anybody who trusts in what Jesus has done, right, on the, all the way to the cross, and his trust in his teaching that he knows truth better than we know truth, anybody who trusts in Jesus more than themselves, who can make this turn to become, to, to make him king, to follow him, any of us who do this become an adopted child of God. And being an adopted child of God means we are able to receive, we are on the receiving end of the very same unconditional love from God the Father that is received by Jesus himself. So you see, while we may have lived most of our lives with with people, with authority figures or parents or whatever, trying to get us to do what they wanted through coercion and fear. And frankly, the church doing that too, unfortunately. That's not God's way. God's way is to change our hearts through love. To be so filled with His love, we want to love Him back and glorify Him in our life. That's a lot different. That's a whole different religion than what the Pharisees were doing, frankly, what you'll hear in a lot of churches today. So becoming, trusting in Jesus makes us an adopted child of God who's loved unconditionally, perhaps for the first time in our lives by anyone, by the Heavenly Father's perfect love. It also means we're given a new family in the church where ideally, and I do say ideally, we don't have to pretend I'm going to talk more about this in a little bit because it is ideally. Ideally, the church should be a place where we don't have to pretend, where we can receive and be honest about our struggles and receive encouragement in our struggle against that old sin nature that we're so habituated to live into. But then finally, the way His law is fulfilled in our lives is we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very present spiritual presence and power of Jesus to help us to increasingly love God and love our fellow man as Jesus loves. That's what the process of change, the lifelong process of the Christian should be, of God changing our hearts, Jesus changing our hearts to be like His. That's how it works. Further on, and well, I wanted to say, that's actually attractive to the world around. More fear and coercion and condemnation, not attractive, right? The world has plenty of that, right? They get it wholesale. So the way Jesus intends for, for his followers to actually make the world take notice 
He talks more about it in the rest of his sermon. He says, for example, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He says, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Only God's changing of our hearts can empower us to do that superhuman command, which is superhuman, right? One thing to love your kids, one thing to love your neighbors, your enemies? The people on the other side of the political divide, the people who've hurt and wounded you the most? That takes God's help. And it's a journey to live into that more and more, right? We don't do it perfectly. He progressively changes our heart to be like His. And when we do that, the world will notice because it'll be something they don't usually interact with. Frankly, they don't usually interact with it, particularly from the church. So this is how Jesus is going to make his followers to be salt and light to the nations in ways the Pharisees didn't. And this is why in verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I already said, most people read that and think, now, wait a second. These scribes and Pharisees, they were really... I mean, they were particular about keeping God's law. And you're saying, I don't get to heaven if I don't do it as well. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven is living a heavenly life now in the power of God. And we can't do that unless we get over the ways of the Pharisees and scribes, right, which which use God's law oppressively on people and allow Jesus to change our hearts. And, and, and for the keeping of God's law to come from within us and not just outward performance. It's so miserable. So if we live with Jesus as our King, He will help us to rise above living only for ourselves like the world does and living only for our self-preservation like the world does. And he'll teach us to live out the true intent of God's law, which is ultimately loving our enemies, even as God loves them. But before I close, I, I would be remiss today, I've made hints of it already, if I didn't acknowledge that in, in today's church, the Western church, the American church, church everywhere, right? Because the church is full of, of people who still struggle with sin. Unfortunately, what we find is we often find God's law employed in a manner much more similar to the ways that the, the Jews Jesus is critiquing were employing it. Instead of the way Jesus is calling us to. Right? Much like those first century Jews, the church of today can often seem hell-bent on self-preservation, right? And teaching God's law as a means for appearing distinct from the world, right? Of being better than the world. We, we have this Christian identity. We're the church, so we're different, right? We're more holy, right, than the world around. That's a self-preservation instinct, right? An us versus them tribalism. And how's that really working out? I mean, has the church ever been more unpopular than it is, like, today? I'm not sure if it has. 
maybe during the Inquisitions or something. So the fruit born by approaching God's law with a self-preservation, defensive, us-against-the-world mentality, the fruit has been just as bad as it was for those Jews in the first century. Because within church communities, it places enormous pressure on believers to pretend, on believers to, to outwardly conform, to hide their failures, right? To create these public masks and personas of righteousness, right? Just to remain acceptable. Why? Because what's at stake? we got to be holy, right? But this is in direct contrast to the path toward Christ-likeness that Jesus lays out. Where because of grace, we don't have to pretend that we're perfect. We don't have to pretend. Can you hear that this morning? You can stop pretending. Stop pretending you got it all together. You got life whipped. Again, becoming Christ-like should instead be a seen as a lifelong journey that never ends, that frankly, in order for us to progress, requires that we be able to be vulnerable and real, particularly with other believers, right? That's how we progress, is by vulnerability with others about where we're really at and relying on wisdom of of those who are further along the path, relying on accountability from one another, being encouraged and loved and not condemned and rejected. So the role of the church is to provide believers with a context that's safe, where they can learn to love God in their moral life and move more towards sacrificially loving their neighbors and enemies. But understand, they're not going to do it perfectly. That's a progression, right? Now, the church shouldn't tolerate teachings that would compromise God's commands. We, we shouldn't enable sin and dysfunction, celebrate sin, but we've got to remain merciful toward one another and understand that Jesus' process of transforming believers' character is progressive. We don't turn to Jesus and then we've just got it all fixed. So that's the bad fruit that needs to be corrected inside the church. Lessons from this passage. But toward the outside world, we must not abandon our vocation to be salt and light out of fear and self-preservation. In the public square right now, that is what the church is doing. They are afraid. They're more afraid than people who don't know Jesus, which makes no sense. Right? It's all about their own saving their own butts and their own bank accounts. Right? They are terrified. And in doing that, they're giving up a chance to, to be salt and light to the world. The epidemic of tribalism and using God's law to judge and condemn non-believers in the public square is pretty out of control. And the reason is because that's a lot easier than figuring out how to love people. Especially people different. Especially people you don't understand. Just can't relate to their experience. It's a lot easier just to write them off. So I want to close by asking if we can repent, if we're willing, in our own hearts and lives, to, to repent of any ways we've been participating in that culture, 
both that culture toward the outside church and the cult, a culture within the church. I know there's, there's people here from other churches, right? Can we repent of participating in that? Can we make amends to those we've harmed so that Jesus can actually restore us to saltiness? For as it says in John's Gospel, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And the same goes for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.